Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks again for watching on YouTube. Thanks again for discussing these sermons with your home groups. I know it's it's not the same as being together. I know that. I wish we were together right now, but thank you for taking in God's Word, receiving God's Word, pursuing fellowship together around God's Word as we do our best during this time. I trust God is meeting you and encouraging you nonetheless. I sure hope so. I pray to that end. Well, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to Genesis chapter 38 or open it up on your phone app. Genesis chapter 38. We're going to continue this morning our series in the book of Genesis. In 2015, a picture of a black and blue dress was posted to the social media site Tumblr. But many didn't see the dress as black and blue. Many saw it as gold and white. One week after this picture was posted to Tumblr, there were 10 million tweets debating whether the dress was black and blue or whether it was gold and white. Well, later on, it was confirmed that the dress was, in fact, black and blue. But the whole incident illustrates how we can look at the same thing. We can look at the very same thing, but view it very differently. Human failure, human failure is like that. We can look at the same incident or situation of human failure and view it very differently. One way, one way is to see human failure as, as almost final, almost fatal, as ultimately determinative, a kind of roadblocks to God's plans and purposes, perhaps. We can view failures in the country that way. In this time of a pandemic, I'm sure you're aware there are real differences emerging in the country about what the government should be doing or should not be doing. And maybe you're feeling that. Maybe you are really bothered by how you perceive certain issues that might be failures in the country. Maybe that's really disturbing me right now. And others are viewing that differently. Or we can view failures in the church as sort of final or almost fatal. Some see failures in the church's ministry and, and mission, and they want to withdraw from the people of God in a kind of cynical attitude. They say, I'm, I'm done with the church because of how they view those failures with the church. Or it can happen in how we view failures in our own lives. Maybe you see your own sin and it's it's almost paralyzing to you. Your sin puts you in a kind of spiritual depression. You think God's work in your life is messed up beyond repair. That's one way to view situations of human failure. It's, it's almost fatal. It's almost final. It seems like it's a roadblock to what God is doing. But like that black and blue dress, it's possible to look at the same situations and see something quite different. To yes, be realistic about failure, absolutely. But nonetheless, to view those situations through, through the lens of faith toward God. A lens of faith toward God and his purposes 
To see human failure as real, yes, as often painful, yes, but ultimately no match for God's saving plans and saving purposes in the earth. And this passage, this unusual passage, can function like that lens for you. Let's see it. Let's give it an overview in three parts. First part I would call the family failures. First, the family failures. Look at verse 1, please. Verse 1 begins, It happened at that time. Recall the sons of Judah, grandson of Abraham. Judah's sons have sold their brother Joseph into slavery. And now, while Joseph is languishing in slavery, now we're told more about one particular brother named Judah. It happened at that time, Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hiram. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah turns aside, it says, turns aside to a Canaanite friend, one of a people that God would ultimately judge for their false religion and devotion to their false gods. So this is not a good sign for Judah's spiritual condition at this point. And in verse 2, he sees and takes a Canaanite woman as his wife. Those two verbs, see and take, they, they appear together in Genesis on a number of occasions, and none of them positive. The first being in Genesis 3, when Eve sees and takes of the forbidden fruit. So Judah sees and takes a Canaanite woman as his wife. You see, Abraham, earlier in Genesis, had insisted that his son Isaac not marry a Canaanite, and he didn't. And then Isaac insisted, insisted that his son Jacob not marry a Canaanite wife, and he didn't. But Jacob's son Judah now, he does. Sees her, he takes her. She's never named in the passage. And three sons are born to them, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Pick it up in verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, nothing more is told to us about Tamar's background, but it is assumed here that she is a Canaanite also, and things do not go well for the young couple. Look at verse 7. Ur, Judah's firstborn. Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. You know, at times, God's future judgment breaks suddenly into the present like this. Times in which we are reminded, as C.S. Lewis put it in his Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan the lion, that he is good, but he is not tame. God does not bow down to our 
perceived rights to a long life, to health, to wealth, to happiness, to prosperity. He will not be domesticated by us. He is holy. And he rightfully puts Ur to death for his wickedness. And this creates the central tension, the central problem in this chapter, that of Tamar, wife of Judah's firstborn son, now childless. God had promised Judah's grandfather, Abraham, countless descendants, like the sand on the beach. So being childless in Genesis always brings those promises into question. And a childless widow would be destitute. She would have no heirs, no land, no property staying in the family line. So Judah calls his second-born son, Onan, to do what was common in cultures of that day, have children with Tamar on behalf of his older dead brother, Ur. It's a very strange, strange practice to us. But again, it was common in cultures of this day. And it was purposeful in that it would continue the family line here of the firstborn and preserve their particular inheritance rights. However, Onan refuses repeatedly. Onan is selfish and greedy. You see, children that he would raise for his brother Ur, they would have inheritance rights prior to or over Onan and his own children. But more than that, he is deliberately acting against God's purposes to bring descendants through Abraham and to bless all peoples of the earth. And so God puts him to death as well. Pick it up in verse 11. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, his third son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah's actions here are a bit perplexing. It appears he is pawning off Tamar's situation and Judah's responsibility back onto her own father. He does promise Tamar, his youngest son, Shelah, when he grows up to be her husband. But the narrator clues us in. Judah has no real intention of delivering on that promise. He's afraid Sheila will die too. And it seems he's blaming Tamar. Do you ever, do you ever look at an old family photo and kind of cringe? Maybe... A family member is in that photo that caused some pain to you or caused some pain to your family. We should cringe a bit like that here. And this, this is the family of God. This is the family through whom God promised to bring blessing to all peoples, all nations of the earth. This is the, the nucleus, you might say, of the family of God in the earth at this time. And it's not a pretty picture. Judah's first two sons are killed for their wickedness. 
Judah appears to be blaming his daughter-in-law, callous to his son's sins. And Judah seems to care little for Tamar's plight or ultimately the promises of God. But in the midst of this family failure, we find, secondly, the desperate act. Secondly, let's call the next section the desperate act. The pace of the narrative now slows way down. In the first 11 verses, we covered approximately 20 years of time. In the rest of the chapter, we cover about one year of time. The narrator slows the pace way down to highlight next what is happening. Judah's unnamed Canaanite wife dies. And sometime later, Judah goes to his Canaanite friend and it's sheep shearing time. That's party time, Canaanite style. Now Tamar to this point has seemed quiet and compliant in the passage but now a, a flurry of verbs describes Tamar as a woman of great intentional action. You see, Sheila is now grown and Judah has clearly reneged on his promise to give Sheila and Tamar in marriage. And so in verse 14, Tamar takes off her widow's garments. It's interesting, she's been grieving Judah's sons all this time. She takes off her her. her her um, widow's garments, and Tamar stands by herself in a town where Judah is located, a town whose name means opening of the eyes. Now, for a woman to be standing there by herself in this day was suggestive, and Judah believes her to be a prostitute. Now, her face is covered, and perhaps Judah has been drinking heavily, so he doesn't recognize Tamar, but she agrees to his proposition on one condition. In verse 18, she says she wants the promise of a payment, quote, in the form of his signet, cord, and staff. His signet, cord, and staff. That would be basically Judah's picture ID, sort of his driver's license or his passport. It was undeniable proof of who he was which he provides. Later on, Judah sends payment, a goat, to what he thinks was a temple prostitute. His friend cannot find said temple prostitute. And three months go by, and Tamar is found to be pregnant. Now, technically, she is still betrothed to Sheila, Judah's youngest son. So this would be considered adultery, a capital offense. But Judah's response is extreme. Verse 24, he says, bring her out and let her be burned. Sheila, uh, Judah has rather withheld his son Sheila from her, but stoning is not good enough for Judah. He wants her burned. He wants her out of the picture because she perhaps has caused so much pain in his family. Let her be burned. This was always the danger for Tamar's plan. But she waits. She waits till the last moment, verse 25. As she was being brought out, 
as she's being led to her execution, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. Judah's eyes are now opened to what really happened at the town called Opening of the Eyes. He admits his guilt, and he proclaims Tamar's innocence. No matter how we may view Tamar's actions here, that's the perspective of the account. Judah admits his guilt and he proclaims Tamar's innocence. She is more righteous than I, he says. It is admittedly a very strange scene. You might ask, Tab, why is it here? Well, certainly, Judah's actions are setting up a contrast with Joseph's actions in the next chapter, as we'll see. It's also the start of Judah's transformation. He will be a changed man in the end. And that change may very well begin here when his eyes are opened. But ultimately, ultimately the scene is in your Bible to function like that lens. A lens through which you can view human failures. Tamar acted to preserve Judah's line, the line of his firstborn son, in a way Judah was not. She acted to preserve her right to bear an heir for Judah's firstborn son. In effect, in effect, Tamar was determined to see descendants for Abraham provided like God had promised. And that, that is very, very important. Because God had promised a savior to come through Abraham, that blessing to all peoples of the earth. So let's see the conclusion and call it the forwarded purposes. Thirdly, the forwarded purposes. Verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Perez meaning a breach. In this unusual birth account, you'll notice the younger is again favored over the older, like Jacob and Esau previously, setting the stage for Joseph's rise in Egypt, the younger brother. But it sets the stage for much more than that, doesn't it? The next time Tamar's name appears in the Bible, her name is being invoked as part of a blessing when a woman named Ruth is marrying a guy named Boaz. In Ruth chapter 4, women say, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. 
And in that chapter, we're told that from this line from Tamar and Perez, it led to Ruth's husband, Boaz. And then Boaz, track with me, Boaz and Ruth have a child. And we're told in that chapter, that child was the grandfather of great King David. So catch this. Tamar's actions here, Tamar's desperate act, led to David, a crucial figure in salvation history. It was to David, God promised an eternal reign, an eternal king to come from David's line. And so, so we should not be surprised that Tamar appears in the New Testament also in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1 verse 1 reads, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Then it lists Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and says, quote, the father of Perez by Tamar. She's listed there with three other ladies, you see, not, o- not only did Tamar, this, this Canaanite woman, act in a way that God used, God used to bring King David, Tamar's desperate act was also used by God to lead to the coming forth of the Savior, Jesus Christ, the blessing for all peoples of the earth. I hope you're beginning to see now how this chapter can be like a lens. A lens of faith as you look upon human failure all around you. It's a chapter that calls us not to do something, but to believe something about God. To believe that God forwards his saving purposes even through human failures. That's the lens. Believe that God forwards his saving purposes in the earth, despite and sometimes even through human failures like we see here. I mean, this chapter is failure on top of failure through this cringe-worthy family. And yet God was forwarding his purposes all the time not minimizing the failures, not minimizing sin for a moment, but every step of the way, God was acting to further his purposes, and he's doing so right now, friends, and he will do so until his son returns and makes all things new. You must believe that. In other words, the effect of this chapter can be faith toward God like that. A faith like how Martin Luther described faith. Martin Luther said, Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's faithfulness. I think that describes Tamar pretty well. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's faithfulness. It makes a man or woman glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and men. The lens of this chapter can produce that kind of perspective, even as you look on human failure all around you. 
You see, like that blue and black dress that many saw as gold and white, we can look at these failures, but we can, with this kind of lens, see something different. With this lens, we can look with eyes of faith at failures we might see or perceive in the country right now. I'm sure we have among us in our church differing levels of concern about this coronavirus. I understand that. Differing views on what social distancing should or should not look like. I understand that. And differing views on what government should be or should not be doing. What I want to ask you is, how are you viewing those situations? Are you maybe filled with a sense of outrage or maybe even anger? You feel like your constitutional rights have been violated. Or maybe you're filled with a sense of anger that you think is righteous anger because the government hasn't done enough or hasn't acted quickly enough. Look, I'm not here to figure all that out with you. But what if we viewed whatever failures we perceive through this lens. Wouldn't that refocus us on the bigger picture? Wouldn't that refocus us on God's unstoppable plans in the earth? I'm not saying ignore whatever failures you perceive. I'm saying let's keep the big picture in mind and wouldn't that, friend, wouldn't that keep us closely united? Whatever differences we make. Governments will fail us, but you can view even that with a sense of faith toward God, believing that believing that he will forward his purposes nonetheless. If he did that through Judah and Tamar, he's certainly doing that right now. Believe that for that glad, bold, and happy faith, even in a time like this. Or, or view with faith any failures you may perceive in the church of Jesus Christ. The family of God on the earth today is still rather cringe-worthy at times. I imagine you'd agree. Sadly, church leaders fail us at times. Sadly, churches split and sadly, churches flounder. We fail to make disciples. We fail to reach out to the nations, our own communities, like we could and should. How do you view those shortcomings in the church? Do you see them with a lens of cynicism? Do they they tempt you to be cynical and maybe tempt you to withdraw? Do they tempt you to withdraw from the people of God or withdraw from serving, or withdraw from fellowship, because this church or that church has let you down. Look, I'm not saying ignore those shortcomings. But this chapter helps you view them, not cynically, but with eyes of faith. Why? Because God forwards his saving purposes despite and even through human failures. Then will we not have that living, daring, 
confidence that God is faithful, that God is faithful even when we are not, that God will carry the day even when we cannot, that he is indeed building his church and nothing will stop him until he returns. Friends, then we will have this glad, bold, and happy faith to join with the people of God in the purposes of God. Use this lens for any failures you perceive in the country or failure you might perceive in the church. And use this lens even for failures you might perceive in your own life. This chapter, this chapter shows us that God can use people who sometimes fail badly. I mean, think about, just for example, think about the area of parenting. Parents are vital in the forwarding of God's purposes in their children's lives. Vital. But parents, we can have one of two tendencies when it comes to our children. We can take too much credit when our children are doing well, or we can take too much blame sometimes when they're not. If you're in that second category right now, feeling, feeling condemned by parental failure, I want you to apply this. John Piper has called parental guilt a viper. It bites, it hurts, it stings. It can paralyze us with guilt in our parenting. And maybe you're feeling that paralysis right now. You know, parents, we, we must always own our own failures, but not be paralyzed by them. Not be paralyzed because God forwards his saving purposes despite or even through human failures, even our own in our parenting. Listen, your failures as a parent, your weaknesses, your sin as a parent, it is not fatal or final in terms of hindering God's purposes in the life of your child. He wants you to have that faith this morning. Apply this to any failure in your life, to any failure. Let me ask you, what do you do when you see your sin? What do you do? How do you respond when God graciously convicts you of sin? What happens for you? Do you mope? Do you kind of wallow in, in shame? Do you believe maybe that God now loves you less? Look, instead, instead God wants you to respond redemptively. To grow from it, yes, but to turn to Christ. To believe the gospel. To hope in the good news of his life, death, and resurrection. And then Jesus gets the final word on your failures. Not you. 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, our failures, you might say, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So hope in Christ, friends. Then Jesus gets the final word, not your failures. Your failures are not 
They're not fatal to God's plans and purposes to transform you either. Romans 8, 28 and 29 tell us that for, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes, he works all things, all things, no exceptions, all things together for your good. What is that good? It's in verse 29, making you more like his son. God uses everything to transform those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So again, your failures are not fatal or final. No, God will still forward his purposes. And the greatest proof of that is not Judah and Tamar. The greatest proof of that is in the cross of Jesus Christ. When Judas, one of Jesus's closest disciples, failed miserably, sold out his teacher, our Savior, for money. And the religious authorities failed to recognize him as the Messiah. And they perverted justice to condemn Jesus. And Pontius Pilate failed to do the right thing, and he has Jesus crucified. And yet God used all of those human failures to bring about his ultimate saving purposes to give his son as a ransom for the sins of all who believe. Friends, how will you view your failures? Will you use this lens that he forwards his saving, redemptive plans and purposes, despite and even through human failures? Let's pray. Let's pray we would have that perspective. Let's pray we would use that lens of faith toward God. Father, we acknowledge that our failures are real, that our sin is serious in your sight. We do not want to minimize that for a moment. You are holy, and this passage reminds us that you judge every sin. And yet, help us to trust in your Son, to trust in his finished work and to trust you that even now, through whatever failures we may be perceiving, even now you are nonetheless forwarding your redemptive, saving plans and purposes for nothing and no one can stop you. Spirit of God, give us this lens of faith, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen.